This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the optics of a Secret Service scandal. What does the no-drama Obama reaction say about the president's leadership? We'll check back in with former Secret Service agent Dan Emmett. Then, all things digital in politics. Dave Almasy, former White House Internet guru and e-communications director in the Bush 43 White House, joins the conversation. This week, we're joined by Polyoptics contributor Arun Chaudhry, former videographer to President Barack Obama, and of course, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com and production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Arun and Josh, it is great to have you here. All three administrations well represented, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. Great what, to be with you. what a wonderful, uh, diverse polyoptics week we are having, Josh. Well, I wouldn't necessarily call it wonderful, Adam. I mean, there were, there were some amazing photos that I hope we can talk about, but there were some very troubling uh, revelations brought to uh, print by the Los Angeles Times of photography of uh, U.S. servicemen holding aloft uh, body parts of Taliban fighters that, that finally uh, got into print this week. There was the discussion about the site survey trip of the GSA to Las Vegas. Uh, and I hope we talk about uh, President Obama's visit to Rosa Parks' bus uh, when he All went to the Ford Museum. All of those are, are part of what perhaps I should have described as a very rich polyoptics Rich, rich a better word. Uh, Arun, you're back with us here in studio at POTUS headquarters in Washington, D.C. as we uh, begin this episode of Polyoptics. Uh, one of the here. things that the Obama administration is embroiled in right now, and we're, we're about to start talking about, is this uh, trip to Cartagena, Columbia for the Summit of the Americas and some malfeasance, yep. apparently, that took place on the part of Secret Service agents and some of the military. You traveled on trips just like that. Uh, yes, uh, although uh, I was never able to go on the pre-advances, which is, uh, as you know, when uh, when security as well as communications team, everyone go ahead of time. Yeah, Josh to... and I, we did a lot of that. And uh, I think we, we've all seen how this thing uh, can play out in real time for the, for the people who are actually there to protect the president and set these things up, Josh. Sometimes between the pre-advance and then the actual advance can be on the ground for close to three weeks. Well, that's right, Adam. I mean, if you go on a site survey, which a very small group from the White House will do, uh, one representative usually of the Secret Service, one of the military, one of the president's office, one of the advance office, and a few others, diplomatic personnel, etc. Then you come home and you report your findings, and then you go out again on what's called a pre-advance, which you take a larger group and you almost walk through the whole script of a trip. And then the advance team departs. And on a foreign trip like this, uh, a trip that was, I think, to begin on a Friday, it wouldn't be surprising if the advance team arrived seven to ten days in advance. And that would include components of presidential staff, Secret Service, military, White House communications, etc. And uh, uh, as has been reported in the previous week, uh, there are other, there are various units of the Secret Service uh, that go. There's the presidential detail, the CAT team, counter sniper, technical services division, etc. 
people can be on the ground walking through every facet of a visit. And it's during these days that people get to know each other and perhaps uh, do a little t- too much celebration. And we spent some time uh, just a couple weeks ago talking with Dan Emmett, uh, a fine former uh, United States Secret Service member, uh, an, an officer who worked in the Presidential Protective Division, was in, involved in in CAT team, um, and he, he's back now, Josh, to help us try and dig into what's been transpiring, correct? That's right. Uh, Dan Emmett, author of Within Arm's Length, uh, the new book about his career with the U.S. Secret Service uh, from uh, Reagan's administration to George W. Bush's administration. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's only been three weeks, but a lot has happened, hasn't it? Yeah, it sure has, and uh, glad to be back with you, but not exactly under these conditions. How, Dan, talk us through, talk Adam, Arun, and me about through about how Look, we all got the news last Friday, and we saw we've seen developments with uh, with the way Mark Sullivan has handled the investigation. Uh, Ex agents like Brian Stafford, uh, uh, Dave Wilkinson have been on the air. You've certainly been on the air. From that moment that you heard about this until today, what's been the sort of arc of your understanding of this, and how have you reacted to it? Well, I had just come back from Washington uh, myself. I'd been away for a week and came home late Friday night. Fired up the computer and saw this and. I got to tell you, I was pretty shocked and surprised at what I was reading. Um, certainly, what I was looking at was not characteristic of the 21 years that I served and the culture of the Secret Service that I knew at that time. So, um, my first thought was that, well, gosh, you know, let's uh, certainly see what happens with this investigation because I knew there was certainly going to be one, and there is one, and it's. Uh, it's ongoing right now, and I'm sure it's it's pretty intense at the moment. So, Dan, as you know, I read your book really closely, as did Adam, uh, and I pre- I enjoyed it from cover to cover. But you didn't skirt from some of the issues that are addressed here, and I'll talk about two of them briefly and get your reaction to it. One, you talked about the CAT team and about a particular social culture of the CAT team and what that required over and above your your facility with weaponry. And I'd like you to talk about that social aspect. Which is considerable, though. Let's just, uh, you know, throw that and, in there. But And then the second thing is sort of the admonition that you got as a young field agent uh, brought in in North Carolina. Young Agent Emmett, avoid the three Bs. And it sounds like uh, one of those Bs, in this case, was a government hotel room. No, actually, the three Bs, uh, when, a, when a new agent comes on board, at least back in the early 80s, this is 30 years ago, uh, you're, you know, most of the guys coming in were very young, um, right out of the military, right out of college, and most of the SAICs back during that time were almost elderly. Uh, they were in their uh, 50s usually, and what they would do is bring in a new guy and give him a very fatherly, stern warning uh, on how agents could most easily get themselves into trouble. And we used to call it the the three Bs, and that would be Booze, Broads, Buicks. And the way the sack would tie it all in together would be one of the ways an agent can get in trouble is through alcohol, one is through Buicks, misuse of the government vehicle, and the other is, uh, which was the vernacular of the day, you know, these were their words, Broads, which indicates never have an unauthorized person in the government car with you. Um, His uh, lecture was designed to let you know that those were strictly against the rules. The spirit of that uh, admonition extends to having broads in your hotel room, especially if they are ladies of the night. 
Well, no, it's actually not related at all. It's not related at all. That the no, spirit of that, that admonition wasn't to be engaging with women while you're on duty? No, absolutely not. Okay. It was, it was, it was all centered strictly around the vehicle. Um, I think probably more Secret Service agents uh, have probably had more issues with government cars over the history of the Secret Service than anything else, uh, and that's really what it was designed for. It well, let me focus you on this incident, then. Yeah. Um, your personal reaction, obviously it's not indicative of the service that you knew and served in, um, but Mark Sullivan, uh, who is the uh, director of the United States Secret Service, he, he's been on the job since uh, May of 2006. Should he still be the director of the United States Secret Service right now? At this point, absolutely. Um, it would be extremely premature to ask for Mark's resignation in the midst of this investigation. It's not completed. Uh, now, once once all the facts are known, once everyone's been interviewed and the dust settles, then you know, that'll be up to uh, whomever in the Department of Homeland or Congress or whatever you might have. But at this point, I, I think that it would be ill-advised to remove the director right in the midst of this investigation. I wonder if it's hard for the President of the United States to truly have confidence in the man at this point. Well, you have to remember that, uh, you know, in the military, of course, it's called vicarious liability of sorts. It's the old adage that if the captain is below decks and his ship hits a reef, he's still in, it's, it's still his fault. Uh, I don't really adhere to that 100%, though, even though I was a former military officer. You know, Mark is on the eighth floor up at headquarters. This was going on in Columbia. And I think you have to remember that in the 105, 106-year history that the Secret Service has been protecting presidents, nothing like this has ever come up. And if you look at the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of advances that have been done here at home and around the world, it just doesn't add up, you know, that this is epidemic or an endemic situation of the Secret Service. It's, it's not part of the culture. I think what you have here at the worst is a few people behaving badly, and it's an embarrassment to the service. And but uh, are you are you are you coming at this from the perspective that you don't believe it represents at least a potential uh, threat uh, to national security and the safety of the president while he's abroad? Not in this case. How can you say that? How can you say that when all the facts aren't in? And it's quite possible that that we protect ourselves against, uh, you know, being targets of foreign intelligence. Yep. Uh, that we see operatives on the road who are not only targeting service members but also White House staff and secret and and State Department staff, just to get this kind of access to folks. How can we know? And you can dismiss and that this, this is might not definitely. Have been a you know, I think we're talking about before when when you're landing in a new country, it's definitely a security briefing you get as a White House staffer. You know, the reminders that you know there are people around and that they're not really into you; they're into but your that job. That pretty girl who who sidled up to me at the bar was not interested in the somewhat balding now near middle aged man, or the handsome young guy with all the hair and the sneakers. That's me. But seriously, Dan, I mean, if 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 we if the facts aren't in and the president can still have confidence in the director of the Secret Service, how can we dismiss the potential security breach and and uh, and seriousness of what this represented so easily? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I'm basing it on a couple of things. One, of course, is 21 years as an agent where I traveled all over the world, and I can't recall one time, even in the Soviet bloc countries, where agents were approached, pitched, or any information was tried to attempted to be extracted from them. Uh, the other was the, is the fact that I spent six years at CIA uh, after I retired, and a large part of that time was spent 
in the counterintelligence center counterespionage group or actually participated in investigations regarding sexual blackmail at the agency now what i'm basing it on those two things in addition to the fact that i know secret service agents really don't have any classified or useful information that a foreign intel service wants uh, they're not intelligence officers the president's schedule is not classified um, it changes by the minute josh as you know because uh, things come up and what the staff promotes from one moment will not be current uh, an hour later uh, no classified information discussed at countdown meetings none's removed from classified areas these are basically just guys who know what they know they're doing their part of the advance and when it's over in a week or so they go home uh, foreign intel services traditionally they're going to target intelligence officers or members of the state department that are permanently stationed in those countries that are going to be there for two years three years uh, essentially these guys just really don't have anything that foreign intel would want as you know as glamorous and sexy as that as it sounds that they might um, i'm just not seeing it in this case Dan, let me try a theory out on you that I've been bouncing off of Adam and some other people over the last few days, and I think you touch on it in the book. And that is that uh, you talk about you know who, who actually protects the president and who doesn't, who's sent down to Cartagena as a poststander and who's on the detail or on the cat. And you talk about how a person can begin their career and maybe spend their whole careers out in the field assigned to posts and one of those might be to come to Cartagena with midnight duty in a stairwell. And you talk about in your book how presidents always sort of discover the wonders of Air Force One a few months into their term and then start to use it uh, almost every day of the week. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but to what extent is the Secret Service basically understaffed for the modern realities of how presidents travel and that these guys who might not be uh, on the detail or have that many years in are basically forced to travel from one city to another, barely getting home, if at all, to unpack their clothes. And uh, it just taxes anyone's stamina to be able to go from city to city and not to look for some kind of outlet because the way these presidents travel these days takes 100% of Secret Service manpower, and even that's not enough. Maybe a follow-up, too, is are there too many people who are just assigned to these trips because of new security parameters that are put in place and nothing's ever taken away? No, actually, the minimal number of people absolutely required to get the job done or taken. Um, the post standards that you're talking about that belong to field offices around the country that they fly over to man, you know, the outer perimeters and so on, um, that's looked at very closely by the second supervisor who comes out and reviews the advance agent's plans. Now, a site agent may ask for 10 agents at his particular site. He may ask for 20, but he may not necessarily get them because it costs a lot of money to send these guys out. So he's going to get what he needs, but he's not going to get maybe every in every case what he asks for. In terms of the numbers of people on the presidential detail, are there enough and so on, uh, they're sort of mandated by a certain ceiling that they they can't really exceed, and you just have to do the best you can. Uh, some presidents, for example, like President Reagan, traveled very little. He he hardly ever left the White House. And then you had presidents like Bush 41 and Clinton that, uh, you know, they really did a lot of travel. So it's hard to anticipate how many agents you're going to need based on the administration until 
that president has been in for a while, and then you adjust accordingly. This is exactly why we asked you to come back on and why I challenged you on that question, uh, Dan, because you know better than, than anybody else, and you have been there, you have lived it, and I want to say here on Polyoptics, on Sirius XM 124, that in all of my travels and experience with the Secret Service, especially those in the Presidential Protective Division and the folks who were out there working hard away from their families involved in advance work, these were the most professional folks I have ever met, and I had never witnessed anything like this. These folks make huge sacrifices, and we shouldn't indict the entire United States Secret Service based on uh, the events that, that, that apparently transpired in Cartagena. So thank you for coming back on Polyoptics, Dan Emmett. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Josh King and Arun Chaudhry, a, a very important conversation that's going to continue here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Josh, this isn't over by a long shot, is it? Unfortunately not, Adam. Uh, you'd hope that uh, Mark Sullivan can wrap up the investigation quickly, uh, that it can be contained within the people that uh, were in Cartagena, both in the Secret Service and the military, that they don't do uh, an enormous sort of proctological examination of hundreds of past presidential trips, either foreign and domestic, and and find out more than they want to. Um, you know, as as we said at the beginning of this conversation... Presidents don't just wake up in the morning and say, I want to go to Cleveland. Uh, it's planned two weeks, three weeks, four weeks in advance, and then uh, teams representing civilian political staff like myself and you uh, are sent out along with security and communications and military personnel. And some people, when they finish their day's work, will uh, go put on a movie in their hotel room or go out and get a burger and, and crash. And some people will uh, go out and grab a few drinks. And you, know, you need to know where to draw the line and who to associate with on those missions. Well, I want to turn uh, our episode of Polyoptics. Uh, Arun Chaudhry was a great innovator uh, at the White House as the president's first videographer. Of course, we've talked about in the past the fact that uh, WACA, the White House Communications Agency, uh, has a function and a role in videotaping. But yep. Arun, the digital assets that you created and the coverage of the president in off times and being a part of the campaign before you came to the White House really pioneered new space. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, we were able to not get the, not just capture these uh, these this footage, but also have a place to put it that was you know useful and accessible to the public. Well, accessible to the public is essentially uh, the job description of our next guest, uh, David Almasy, uh, someone I served with in the Bush administration. He was, for lack of a better word, uh, the internet guru. He ran the White House internet site. Was really the leader on digital. When it came to the White House and the communication shop, he is now today uh, the head of digital uh, at Edelman, which is one of the most important public affairs shops in the country. And he runs that team out of Washington and joins us here in studio today. David, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you, Adam. Your description of my uh, involvement was way too kind, but I'll take every bit of it. Well, I mean, you know, a run really took something that we invested a great deal of time in that grew out of uh, what Josh King and the folks in the Clinton administration really uh, built up from a visual perspective and the way the president was supported. The internet was just coming alive when Josh uh, was was doing what he did. And you're the beneficiary of a lot of things, Arun. Yeah, and we're actually very aware of that in the Obama White House, that actually the kind of brunt that people took it on the chin uh, was the Bush administration, especially, you know, making the switch to digital from film. You know, like these kind of, these were brave decisions, uh, 
that have ramifications people listening just cannot understand. So jump in, David. Yeah, yeah so tell us about I, it. I think oftentimes people do compare present day to what tools we had available to us at the time. And so, you know, I think in some ways um, that's just unfair. It's like comparing the Model T to the modern Ford Mustang, right? So, um, and Ford's not a client, by the way. So, <laughs> But um, oftentimes I've described this evolution and give full credit to the Clinton administration as well, because they were the first to be online. That's right. Uh, you know, and I think President Clinton, um, and not only for the White House, but for the cabinet agencies, you know, set the mark and said, we're going to be online. And I heard a statistic, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard that the stat was that at the time the first White House website was launched, there were only 400 websites total online. And And how many did you know about at that time, Josh King? (laughs) Well, it's interesting. At at one of the earlier posts on the story of Polyoptics, our 10-part series, Adam, that launched our little enterprise here, I do paste in or at least provide a link to one of those very early websites. It had a biography of the president and vice president. And it, it had maybe a, a description of White House pets over the years, but it was all static, uh, updated maybe once a quarter, if that. Uh, and it was a, absolutely a dinosaur compared to what David created uh, and then what Arun and his uh, and his colleagues in the Obama administration have done. Well, and, and so the other point here, too, is that, you know, I have often referred to President Clinton as the first Internet president. President Bush is the first digital president. So the first to have his presidency, you know, bookmarked from beginning to end, all eight years cataloged. And then I believe President Obama is the first social media president. Right. So the first to, president. Yeah, right. to actually build on top of those tools that were set. You know, things like Facebook and Twitter didn't really come into play for us until 2007, roughly. And I left, actually, in March of 2007, and it wasn't really until May. June, July, when the campaign started to kick up, quite frankly, that some of these things started to be applied towards campaigning and, of course, government, which are two different things. That's the other thing. Oftentimes, people like to lump in together, well, President Obama campaigned online, so he should be governing online in the very same way, but they're two different entities. Well, give us a snapshot of the history that uh, that you lived, because there are... Any website is an iterative affair, right. and when you think about a White House or our White House as Americans having a presence on the, the, the interwebs, um, <laughs> even if it was Clinton's website, which was preserved as it stood, yeah. just as the Bush website it was preserved as it stood on the last day of the presidency, there was many iterations and updates, and you presided over the most dramatic of them to that point. Take us through where we were in what the Bush administration with your leadership actually did to help make it more accessible for Americans. So I must give credit, of course, to Jimmy Orr, who was my predecessor for the first entire first four years at the White House. I love Jimmy, so, uh, but I also have a, a, a weird spot in my heart because he's the guy that forced me into making movies about a dog. Right. And oh, I did two yeah. of those as well. So I did two, uh, two of the Barney Another producer Cams, of Barney right? Cam is with us. <laughs> so, Don't if, tell Jeannie Mama. No, Jeannie Mama was the driving force between all of them, and it's sort of a love-hate relationship relationship with that video, but it was a lot of fun. And and oftentimes the stories about what the needle we had to the thread uh, that, that we had to thread in order to get those produced. I remember at the time I was a little bit freaked out about doing the Barney cam because I was the, the internet guy, right? I was a communications yeah. person, background in public affairs, very little Hollywood production experience. Um, and so Dale Haney, who was the handler of Barney, and yes, there is a, a person who looks out Dale. for the pets. Well, and there Dale's was, fantastic. Anyway, and, and continuity of pe- that, uh, they do all the dogs. Dale owns the White House. 
power. Dale is still, yeah, yeah. Even Dale. Peaceful Joshua transition. King is a, is a huge fan of Dale. <laughs> and it goes from Socks the Cat to Barney to Bo. To so now Bo, that's right. And Dale has seen them, seen them all. Yeah, and so so Dale said, hey, listen, before you get cracking on Barney Cam, you need to go have a conversation with Barney in the Rose Garden. And I said, you're kidding, right? And Jeannie's like, go ahead. So here I am, a grown man, leaning over, talking to a dog before I believe before I start this whole production. But, you know, they were totally serious, and we had to form a little bit of a connection here, So which was it was humorous. But I remember just thinking, what am I doing? Where am I? How did, how did it get to this point? So, <laughs> but take us but back a lot to of the fun. website okay, and, so and anyway, the innovation there. So, so, yeah, so the idea was, obviously, we'd inherited, um, you know, a website from the first four years, the design standards and how things, uh, how people interacted with content had completely changed. You know, there were such jobs as graphic designers and programmers and that sort of thing. But now we had a team of people that were focused on this from a contractor perspective. So we had about eight folks that worked on our web team, but they were all contractors. So uh, there was only two folks, uh, myself and a deputy who worked primarily on the website itself. And there was a back-end management tool that we called the tool affectionately, but there's no such thing as open source or Drupal mm-hmm. or uh, or any sort of CMS that helped us update content uh, in, in a very fast way. So my biggest concern was from a usability perspective, number one was content arranged in a way that made sense. And number two, were we functionally using the technology to communicate outside of whitehouse.gov? So the concept of an RSS feed at the time was groundbreaking. The government is pushing out information that people can subscribe to and then take information and have it live on other websites. So, but you know, the reason why we focus on the Barney Cam is because that was one of the like aha moments for us because we realized here was something that was fun. Um, you know, the, 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 cre- the cre- creativity was um, that it had to be uh, silly for kids, funny for adults, and above all, presidential, right? And so th- th- yep. th- this was it. But because of the reach of that, we began to see the ways that Barney Cam was starting to spread online, and we started to apply some of those principles to everything else we were doing. So people weren't watching Barney Cam on WhiteHouse.gov. They were watching it on YouTube because people had taken versions of it and put it you know, out there. So we began to lose complete control of the way our content was disseminated online. But what we gained from that was wider audience. And so we began to believe that is it more important to drive people to one website or to have our website be the seed of content that we can push out so people can then see information about what the president was doing. But the very fact, Dave, that we're talking about Barney Cam versus policy material that might be put on the White House website is to talk a little bit about the personality of the person in the Oval Office and ultimately their political prospects. And now that you're at Edelman and advising corporate clients, Uh, I wonder if maybe Arun can react first to this proposition and then you can answer, which is, can the Republicans get it in terms of digital communication? I mean, I am a huge fan of the Obama cool, clean, blue design aesthetic and how they completely ran laps first around Senator Hillary Clinton and then around Senator John McCain in 2008. And they've They've morphed that into WhiteHouse.gov and now are applying similar techniques and tools into Obama 2012. And I wonder, uh, Arun, if you could sort of comment about where you, where you think Obama 2012 digitally is going, and Dave, whether you think the Romney campaign will be any match for it in terms of Facebook friends, Twitter followers, and other online information. Well, I mean, I think the uh, what you're seeing already in uh, the 2012 reiter- reiteration of the Obama digital team is that they're not going back to the same playbook specifically. Uh, you'll notice the introduction video uh, for the president doesn't actually feature the president in it, which is a very unusual thing. But because, you know, it's about reigniting a movement, not necessarily reintroducing you to someone who you've hopefully gotten to know fairly well through a, a lot of the digital techniques uh, that have come out. But what I do think you see 
them playing to is the strengths uh, that they're not only that their candidate has, but also the sort of that their side has. Democrats, progressives, they do gravitate more towards humor, towards things like that. There's a reason why The Daily Show has a fairly liberal perspective and there's not the equivalent, uh, you know, uh, Republican uh, comedy show. So I do think you, you'll find... It's an oxymoron. <laughs> I think that you'll find that the Romney camp will fail, and I'll obviously let our guests speak to it, but will fail if they're trying to make the same kind of material that the Obama campaign makes, uh, but if they st- you know go to the things that speak more towards not only what they're trying to say, but the way in which people on that side speak, I think they'll be successful. To your point earlier, Josh, is that you know the Barnekin was an example about showing a human side, a different side of uh, of the presidency. You know, the number one most watched video on our White House website was the President uh, Bush giving a tour of the Oval Office every week, no matter what was going on in the country, around the world, no matter what issue was pressing, that was the number one video. And so that, because people had an interest in just the institution of the White House itself, um, the history, you know, educators, students, people coming uh, from all over the world to the website, seeking information about what the president did that day and everything that was pertaining to the institution and our country as a result. And so as far as the campaign is concerned, you know, there is this narrative out there that Republicans are lagging when it comes to the use of social media. Actually, as a result of a recent study that we just uh, uh, put out called uh, Capital Tweets. Uh, this is an Edelman study uh, where we analyzed official use of Twitter between members of Congress. So House and Senate, 456 total members of Congress using uh, Twitter, 90% roughly of the Senate using it, found that Republicans are winning online when it comes to Twitter. And you might ask, well, what does that mean? So yeah. there's a series what of... What does winning yeah. mean, David? So um, not in a Charlie, Charlie Sheen way. Charlie Sheen defines it as. <laughs> exactly. huh? yeah, there, there's no tiger blood involved. But I will say that I'm a aware of. Um, But I will say that uh, we determined a set of metrics um, and we analyzed basically 60,000 tweets, uh, 1.3 million mentions between September and December of last year. So it's a snapshot in time. And of course, it's changed, you know, the week after, let alone three months after. But some of the things we're able to pull together was, number one, who was tweeting? How were they, you know, engaging with constituents? What were they saying internally with each other? Were they treating across the aisle? Were they collaborative? We did know that anytime the president or the White House was mentioned, engagement rates went up if they included video or links to photos, that sort of thing. But ultimately, what we found is that 30 percent more uh, Republicans were tweeting 30 percent more than Democrats in general. So that was number one. Number two is that um, they were three and a half times more likely to publish about legislation. And so these types of things, obviously tweeting more, if you play more on the field, you have a better chance of winning, uh, was uh, was one thing. And we also found that different regions um, engage a little bit differently. So anyway, so it, it was a pretty interesting study. And, and overall, you know, our whole point was to determine the effectiveness of this. Now, you apply some of these. Oh, and then the other piece about um, tweeting out personal information. So uh, I think Senator... That would be the Andy Weiner... Uh, well, no, not that. Um, uh, that obviously did not help the cause. Um, but um, Claire McCaskill, senator from Missouri, Democrat, of course, um, has been huge on Twitter from the outset, you know, yeah. using things like pound MO. She's from Missouri, the shorthand for the state uh, in her tweets, said something on Twitter that most press secretaries would probably freak out about if they saw, which was she tweeted out, I hate the fact when I look in the mirror that I feel fat. And so that was really interesting. And so you're like, well, what are you doing? You know, you're a senator. But the engagement rates went through the roof because people saw that that was a real authentic moment. And they related to that. And engagement continued to, to grow. And people gained a new respecter as a real person who struggles with things like everyone else does. So does that mean when that happens that uh, the number of followers go up? And 
tweets, retweets, shares, adding to list, followers go up, um, all of the above. Absolutely. And do you have any examples of folks uh, from the Republicans doing stuff like that? Uh, and I'll say that the premise of the question is because you are mentioning that this rates 30 percent more, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, you know, I know that there was a concerted effort to do that in the 2010 election. It is kind yeah. of final four style tournaments. Uh, and it seems to me almost military style. There's just more, bigger. We yeah. want bigger tweets. We want more of them. Uh, and I don't necessarily find them to be that effective unless, like we're saying, there's this something else backing it up, something more interesting. Well, I think, and as we talked about at the outset, the evolution of campaigning and online, I mean, what was able to be done in 2004, and then, you know, keep in mind that YouTube and Twitter and Facebook didn't exist in the yeah. 2004 campaign, right? So these are websites that cropped up post that. So what the Obama and campaign... Twitter and, barely made it into the 2008 campaign. It was not it that would, relevant. You yeah, know? I mean, I think during the debates a little bit, I mean, Twitter would probably argue a little bit because they had a lot of products around the campaign. We've asked Adam Sharp to come in and talk to us, <laughs> but uh, we've yet to put him in the chair. Right. Um, well, we can work on that. Um, but yeah, but so, so then looking at 2008 and then 2010 with the Republicans really doubling down on digital and figuring out, okay, we, we get it. We learned. We saw what happened in the 2008 campaign. We realized we're missing an opportunity. So then when those folks were elected, then they started applying it to, uh, to, to governing. And now here we are in 2012, and I think you're going to see some of the same. To your question about Republicans using it, mean, obviously those in leadership, we've got Speaker Boehner you know, using it very effectively. Um, you know, Nick Shaper, who you know, is now with the Chamber of Commerce. We've had Nick Shaper on this broadcast yeah. talking about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, Nick was able to step in and shape this from the beginning. You know, Matt Lira with Eric Cantor's office. You know, Matt has done a tremendous job. Um, you've got uh, Congresswoman uh, McMorris Rogers heading up the New Media Caucus uh, and, and, and Patrick working with her over there, uh, Bell. Um, and so, you know, they're stepping in. And um, what we found is that, you know, using these tools more effectively, both from um, the leadership offices, whether it's the speaker, whether it's the leader or the conference, and really helping train folks on how to use it more effectively. So uh, that's what's changed as people are more open to using these types of technologies and integrating it with their messaging both online and off. We are talking to David Almasy of Edelman Public Affairs uh, here on Polyoptics, Sirius XM 124. Uh, Joshua King, uh, you set us off on this great conversation. What's your take on the metrics and uh, whether or not more is more when it comes to to tweeting on Capitol Hill and in the political room? Well, it's interesting, Adam. Seven days ago when we taped our last show of Polyoptics, uh, we had Ned Martell on, and the big question was Ann Romney and the uh, spat that had evolved when Hillary Rosen went on CNN and said that she'd never worked a day in her life. And then the next day... Uh, this woman uh, who'd never tweeted a tweet in her life, who on her, the, her Twitter bio says she's mom of five boys, grandmother of 16, out campaigning for at Mitt Romney, Mitt 2012. She goes from zero followers to 38,651, starting with this one tweet. I made a choice to stay at home and raise five boys. Believe me, it was hard work. And that has, and she hasn't talked a lot about that since. But she has totally pushed back on on the conversation that was started by Hillary Rosen just by tweeting. Jim Messina, who's been tweeting nonstop, who's the Obama campaign manager from Chicago, has twenty thousand followers total. And Ann Romney, in one week, starting with that one tweet, and she hasn't tweeted much since. Now thirty six thousand people that she can communicate with at any moment. 
So, Josh, uh, this is David. I, you know, I, I found that to be really fascinating and saw that happening in real time as well. What was fascinating to me as well was that her second tweet was, I'm going on Fox News to talk with Martha McCallum about this. Tune in. And she put the time, I think it was 1030 that right. morning. So, you know, at Edelman, we talk about not just social. So I think we can't look at these things in a vacuum. You know, you have to look at social. You have to look at owned media, like the channels that you own and make sure that you're integrating. You have to look at social media, owned, uh, traditional media, um, and what we call hybrids, which are the Huffington Post and Daily Callers of the world. And so they all play a role. And just investing in one channel over another um, is not a recommended strategy. But the fact that she went to Twitter first was interesting and obviously was a news story in and of itself. Um, so it's unusual that a story starts in social media and then bubbles up and begins to grow. But the story actually started on CNN and mm. then went from there. There was a reaction that I thought was interesting. There's just this perfect meld. Twitter turns out just to be the, the most perfect television companion, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I almost don't enjoy watching TV at all anymore unless yeah. I have a Twitter feed telling me how you know my closest 4,000 friends feel about it. <laughs> so as we <laughs> think uh, with David Almasy in the room, uh, with us here on Polyoptics about how politicians, both on the campaign trail and our leaders on the Hill, are using Twitter, are, are activated digitally, and you bring the experience of helping to, to move the White House forward, which was done on behalf of President Bush, but mm-hmm. it really moved our White House and our communications as a country forward. Those infrastructural things, that leadership that happened there, and I want our audience to understand, was done for the betterment of the presidency of the United States. And all of that, that that was done was passed along to the administration that President Obama inherited, the one that you worked in, Arun, um, as we received the benefit of a lot of the innovations that the Clinton folks did. Where are we today and what's next, David? Yeah, so I would also add to that that the, the, my one... So I worked for five years at C-SPAN, is also in my background. And my one uh, key takeaway I took from that was <clears throat> I wanted to make sure the American people, regardless of their politics, regardless of whether they agreed with the president or not, had access to everything he was saying, whether it was a full transcript, audio, photos, so that they could actually feel like they were living the the presidency along with the president. Um, and so, you know, I think that the evolution of that and all of these different digital strategies, I mean, th- there is somewhat of a sense that some of them may be time wasters or that it's not necessarily, you know, helping achieve a goal like, you know, whether it's the economy or whether it's uh, homeland security or whether it's immigration or education, whatever the issues are. I think that these tools are just ways to better connect people with the folks who serve on their behalf. And what what has happened is the one way channel of communications, making sure that your issues get told if you're a member of Congress or the president or, or a cabinet leader or what have you, um, has changed now because the voice and the megaphone is much larger. As I mentioned earlier, not just Twitter, Facebook, Foursquare, YouTube, all these different channels are just augmenting the conversation in the room. And if you're not paying attention and not engaging with folks in, you know, it could mean it could cost your job in some ways, Um, particularly, you know, when you've got a two year uh, assignment in the House and, you know, six in the Senate or four in the White House. And so if if it appears that you're not engaging in this in this way, that you're out of touch. Uh, But the opposite problem could happen, too, is that if you oversaturate the channels with too much content, it becomes a little bit too much uh, that your content is ubiquitous and people get a little bit tuned out as a result. So it's a matter of making sure your messages are honed, that you're reaching people in a targeted way, and also seeking out advocates and supporters who can speak on your behalf, because then it's not just one way, it's multi. There, There is something here that, that I think is very interesting, and I want to touch on it briefly. Uh, Josh King lived through 
the entire Clinton administration and then the development of a library. He has great relationships there. But the the totality of everything that was created, that was done, has been well showcased for your administration, Josh, um, by the National Archives, correct? Not really. <laughs> okay. No, okay. Well, you say not really. It, it gets to a, an even more important point, uh, but expand on that. Well, actually, I, I'm, I went down to Little Rock uh, last late last year for the 20th anniversary of President Clinton's announcement of his candidacy and toured the library again. Uh, first time I'd been back since it had opened. It opened under a torrential rain, rainstorm. Um, the uh, the display hadn't changed at all, uh, and I felt that the it was so limited, and, and technology has come so far since then. I've actually been sitting down and noodling over a, a communication to President Clinton about how I think it's so important to figure out how to retell the story of those eight years and the ten years that followed after in President Clinton's life so that people connect with him, not on a so much on a policy basis, but on a personal geographical basis. Because as Arun knows, and you know, Adam uh, and Dave, uh, that when the president goes anywhere, he, he might give a speech, but he does so much more in that geography that there's a level of history and fame that attends his visit to the local ice cream stand or his meeting a, 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 a soldier in a, in a, a hospital. And these stories sort of die on that day unless there's a, a technological way of always bringing them to life. And so future visitors, I'd hope, to the Clinton Library or online could make a, a geographic connection between when President Clinton came to uh, Belmar, Pennsylvania or Seattle, Washington or Prague, Czechoslovakia and relive that moment so they can know what happened in their backyard. That's what I'd like to say. Okay, so... In that way, Josh, you, you've obviously, as you always do, you, you framed it perfectly. Uh, you didn't get all of the juice that you should have, uh, even through the Presidential Records Act and the National uh, Archives in the Clinton administration. But David Almasy is talking about the first digital presidency in the George W. Bush era. And it is just now, almost three years later, getting to a point where we can begin to un furl what will become the president's library in this catalog of assets. And, and and before you jump into this, David, I want to preface it by saying that Arun recently had a conversation with President Obama. He is probably the most prolific digital content creator of anyone in any presidency ever heretofore. And we don't really know how they're going to be able to utilize, save, and then how will they ultimately make that public to the world. But David, your leadership was about cataloging those assets in real time and plays a large role in in how it will ultimately get shared. So talk about that for a second. Well, what's fascinating too is, as you know, there is uh, the Bush Library is being built down in Texas right now on the campus of Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And uh, I've been very fortunate to have been involved a little bit in that. And so it's fascinating the, the conversations around the framing of that. And you know, the library in and of itself being more than just what President Bush did during his eight years, but what his legacy will be moving forward and taking, you know, a, a potential role in the shaping of, you know, policy, uh, not getting in the way of a current president, obviously, but, you know, through fellowships and-, and You're and, talking and about the long things. view so, yeah, of history. Yeah, here. exactly, exactly. And so, but in terms of preserving uh, that, I mean, I mean, in terms of the, the ways that people interact with content, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, President Bush's father's uh, library in College Station at Texas yeah. A&M, but I think they've done a really uh, good job as well. But, um, but yeah, I mean- 
who knows in terms of like what that will be. I'm sure plans are already underway for the Obama uh, Library and Museum at some point. So. Can I ask you a couple questions? Yeah, about that Maybe you know the yeah. answers to. So you know this is the the first and actually the, the conversation I had with the president was you know hey how do how do they actually save you know your yeah. video files and the answer is we're working on it. Yeah. Um, you guys were the first ones to have a, a purely digital uh, photo library or, or significant of it. Right. Um, what's being done to make sure that doesn't just disappear like yep. someone's uh, home movies? And uh, will and how searchable will it be uh, to the public? Do you right. Think? So, yeah, so exactly. This was our primary challenge because when it came down to the, the privacy uh, uh, requirements and the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, had specific requirements according to the Presidential Records Act anything that's published on behalf of the White House must be preserved for all time. So as a result, we were not permitted to use social media solely. So, for example, we couldn't take the president's photos and put them on Flickr only if they weren't being archived as part of the White House Photography Office. So Eric Draper and his team of folks made sure that, you know, all that was searchable and archivable. And, of course, as you know, there are millions of photos that are taken and only five or six typically on a day yeah, are released. I've been talking to Jody Steck. Yeah, uh, Jody's great. Jody is the former White House photo editor yep. who worked with uh, Eric and is now really at the heart of what's going on with the, uh, the National Archives and the effort to put the Bush Library together. Yeah. And so there's that. And then the video piece, we were not permitted to put any video on YouTube. So basically the video that we owned lived solely on the server. So when we were done, we literally unplugged the server. And actually, uh, my good friend Rob Klaus was in charge of the transition of the website. So literally he unplugged one server and turned the other server on on Inauguration Day. And I was standing in the Air Force, uh, uh, sitting in the hangar at Andrews Air Force Base when President Bush, former President Bush, then was going home to Texas and President Obama was being sworn in. And I had my BlackBerry and I hit refresh and I saw the old website of WhiteHouse.gov. Suddenly the new website for President Obama came up. And I tell you, I got a little emotional. It was a really cool moment. Um, so the fact that all that content lives on the servers, we literally just shipped them off to the archives and said, now it's for you to preserve for all time. I love that image is the new peaceful transition between two administrations is yeah. now is now a redesign on the website. You know what I mean? <laughs> we could talk and we should uh, follow this up with a further discussion along these lines. And unfortunately, we're probably out of time for today. David Almasy, uh, lead of digital public affairs at Edelman uh, and also a, a great member of the digital team from the Bush administration uh, and, a, and a well-known voice here in Washington. Thank you for joining us today on Polyoptics. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's time to play the game that I like to call reading the pictures here on Polyoptics. I am, as you know, joined here with Arun Chaudhry and Josh King. We bring in our Polyoptics expert from the left coast, Michael Shaw of Bag News Notes. What do you got for us in the bag this week, Michael? The biggest story, visual story this week, are the photos that uh, were published by the LA Times of um, U.S. soldiers at basically uh, posing um, with uh, these uh, images of uh, Afghan corpses and uh, then the firestorm that has ensued. This is uh, something that uh, has really, really got the White House lit up, Josh. Well, it has. uh, I think there was a a lot of hand-wringing between the Department of Defense and the Los Angeles Times and the decision about whether publishing these, these photos would incite additional violence in Afghanistan. Uh, versus the LA Times view that uh, they had about 30 pictures and they decided to run two of the ones that they thought were probably least offensive, although they are very troubling to look at. And uh, this is the classic 
journalistic journalist meets government conundrum. I mean, uh, if something happened two years ago that is newsworthy, that talks about the way the war effort was being prosecuted, do the American people, the taxpayers, the people who fund the war have a right to know? And it's very difficult to look at. Uh, you heard um, George Little, the Pentagon spokesman, say today that they needed to increase security precautions around Kabul and other forces in Afghanistan to prepare for any reactions to that. But maybe increasing security preparations is something they ought to do uh, because um, I think that it's it's important to see in as much as we want to uh, respect and admire the work that our men and women in uniform are doing around the world, when they don't meet those standards and values, as Secretary Panetta said in Brussels, we need to know about that as well. Well, Michael Shaw, talk to us for a second about your take on the propriety of running the pictures, where they were run in the LA Times, and your idea about whether in this digital world it matters if they were on the front page below or above the fold, since most people saw them as standalone images on the internet or on bag news notes. In a way, it's sort of like, maybe you can't be a little bit pregnant, but if I'm the White House and I know that this content is coming, I don't think I could ask for much more in terms of how they were presented uh, or just how low-key they were presented. Um, Eighteen photos, right? Uh, most of them had to do uh, with uh, soldiers posing with, uh, with uh, body parts. What actually comes out? You get two photos. One of them it does not involve body parts. The larger photo that came out shows uh, a corpse in the background but uh, it's not sensational. Now, the second photo that the LA Times published uh, online, probably in about 400 pixels wide, which is not very large, in a, in a very fuzzy condition, uh, is a picture that does show uh, the American troops holding up the, these two leg fragments. But it, and then also in terms of that image itself, they, the, the Times did something really interesting too, which is that as opposed to having text caption below it, they made the text, the caption, part of the JPEG itself, which means that if, and circulating this stuff around the internet, and obviously it does. You can't separate the two. You can't separate the two, and when you try and blow it up double size, then the, pic, then the text starts to fragment. So it's almost like a very clever way of making sure that, that the one picture that did get out that relates to the body parts is something that's going to get sent around and, 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 and remain pretty small. What do you think about that, Arun Chaudhry? The way that they were dealt with? I mean, I agree that uh, this was handled very, very sensitively by all the journalists you know, involved in making sure things come out so that they can't you know, be manipulated uh, and things like that. I, I guess, and it's a question more than a statement, I wonder with this ubiquity of everyone having, with the fact that there are just so many more images right? Just of everything that happens anywhere all the time. There are always going to be nasty images of things. So do we well, need to... Well, they're also not unprecedented in our history in terms yeah. of what goes on in war. We, we tend to get a lot more righteous in the, uh, in the comfort of our homes and behind our computer screens with fewer so and fewer Americans threshold? serving on the front lines. These things actually have happened in the past. We're seeing Always them. happen. Yeah. It's horrible. I mean, war is obviously horrible. So I guess, do we need a new threshold of what is newsworthy? Because it used to just be newsworthy that a photo managed to get out, even of itself. That's sort of not that newsworthy anymore. These things just dribble out of everything. So uh, I, I guess, and it's not a statement, it's a question, do we need to reevaluate 
what's newsworthy in terms of this activity that we know happens in all wars on all sides. Josh King, the uh, former Washington bureau chief of Time magazine, is now the spokesman for the White House. And he was chastising the press about the propriety of publishing photos that I think we all agree is newsworthy. Uh, Is this a problem optically for the president? It's a problem. It's a challenge for Jay Carney. But that's the whether you're Tony Snow or Jay Carney or anyone serving as White House press secretary who used to write for a living for a newspaper or magazine, uh, understanding that you have a new boss and a new agenda is something that every press secretary needs to accept when they decide to go to that side of the podium. So Jay is doing what Jay needs to do as White House press secretary. The fact that he used to be bureau chief for Time magazine doesn't enter into the equation, in my view. Uh, Michael Shaw, we've got time for one more photograph. You have pointed out something that is truly a, a viral thing on the Internet. It's, uh, it's, it's the reincarnation of a very, very popular Secretary of State, pictured in a lot of different ways. But uh, help us through this for a second. Well, uh, what's really interesting about the, the Hillary Clinton meme and the text from Hillary is how much I think it renders a lot of, uh, a lot of us dinosaurs. I, I mean, it's no surprise that she kind of uh, tweaked um, uh, 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 Mike Allen in one of those, uh, or, or she didn't, but the, the 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 publishers of the site of the of the Tumblr did. Um, you know what you've got here is uh, Hillary really rising to the forefront in terms of you know being really the cool figure in Washington, and then. Uh, besides the, you know, why why Tumblr is so effective and and how these memes work, if we just focus on Hillary, you know, they they ran this um, site for a couple of weeks, they shut it down. Also very smart. And then last week you had Hillary uh, on the trip to um, South America, and there's a picture of her in Cartagena, Cartagena at a bar dancing, and you know she's now like the it girl and. I think what's really interesting is that Hillary is probably the biggest A-tier politician, public figure, cultural celebrity out there right now who's just not ego-invested. And uh, she doesn't have, um, you know, she's sort of in a way kind of fulfilled that post-partisan promise that we all expected from the early days of the uh, administration. So, you know, she's sort of taken the high road. She's had her successes at the State Department. At the State Department, she doesn't do it any electioneering, so she's you know really neutral in this election. And she said she's not going to run for president of the United States. And, and she says she's not running. I mean, how cool is that? That it's kind of sitting. Josh right King, there you the know the former First Lady and now Secretary uh, of State. Uh, what do you think as you've seen her go through you know these narrative arcs in her career? Is she the it girl right now? Well, it's clear that both President Clinton and Hillary Clinton are have have rapidly assumed national treasure status, uh, both in the the service that they've had and their and President Clinton's post presidency, and Hillary Clinton's service as Secretary of State, which Michael appropriately points out is a, a uh, historically and traditionally and I think uh, uh, legally a an apolitical position. She's not allowed to do anything political, so. The fact that she is uh, does not sort of get into the gutter at all uh, uh, 
puts her up on this status. Uh, Well-deserved, I'd say. And, you know, it's it's interesting, that picture from Cartagena, even as the Secret Story Secret Service story was breaking. That picture also moved on the wire. And just the the composition of these photos, Michael, the fact that she was at a place called Club Havana and the word Havana (laughs) got into the frame made that picture, didn't it? Yeah, it really does. It really does. And, uh, you know, she's just a bigger meme uh, and dominates the reading of that picture, whereas someone else would say, you know, oh, you know, this is sort of shows their socialist tendencies and that the administration really is, you know, uh, you know, not what they seem. And, you know, she just blows that away. It's fascinating, too. It's not a good picture. It's uh, it's taken quickly. It might even, I don't know. It's who a snapshot. Took, it's like it, a Blackberry it's a shot. Snapshot. It's this quick snapshot, and yet sort of the, the it almost has a Mona Lisa-type expression on her face. Um, it's a happy moment uh, of a person who has served uh, in public life going back to Governor Clinton's service in Arkansas, who's endured a whole lot, and sort of everyone knows, as as long as she professes that she's on the final few months uh, or a year of her term as Secretary of State, she says she's going to retire. You almost wish her well with a picture like this, that this person has traveled the world almost constantly in service to the country, uh, and that she's sort of taking this victory lap well-deserved, in my view. Yeah, definitely. Well, Michael Shaw, thank you for helping us read the pictures. Uh, Bag News Notes is a must-hit bagnewsnotes.com you should check what Michael is writing every every day uh, he updates prolifically and some of the most important pictures that we discuss and look at here on polyoptics can be found at bagnewsnotes uh, that is it for our polyoptic show Arun Chaudhry here in studio in Washington Josh King without Toby King joining us again from New York until next time everybody thanks for polyoptics